You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Ancient Faith, Philip Edwards will explore the faith of two ancients, Enoch and Noah, two men of incredible faith who as a result endured a life of separation. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study our past modules, see our future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to this our second week study on the triumphs of faith. We'll be looking at two uh, further characters this evening and uh, focusing on their faith. I've called this, uh, this whole evening's teaching ancient faith because the people that we're going to be examining, they were really ancient people. I mean, thousands and thousands of years ago, before Israel was ever formed or anything. Before I just start there, let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, present ourselves again as students of your word. And Lord, we want to be taught things by you to understand uh, more about yourself. It's, it's all about you in the end. And uh, we can be sometimes distracted to think of other things, but we want, us, we want you to focus us on, on you and who you are and how wonderful you are. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, Lord. Amen. So... Uh, <laughs> What I want you to do as we look at these characters, both this week and next week, and, uh, uh, well, next week, let me say we're not here, we're breaking for two weeks. We're looking at two characters tonight. We're going to break for two weeks, and then we're going to look at another two characters. In Hebrews 6, where we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus, that's in Hebrews uh, chapter 12. That will be our last lesson. That will be the last individual that we examine and examine his faith. When he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, what I want to encourage you to do as we look at these people like we did uh, Abel last week, we need to fix our eyes on him. Just focus on the person and the example of faith that he's given us. As I said, we're going to deal with Enoch, an ancient one, and Noah as well, who was someone uh, ancient really before... uh, before the world was very old, simply just a few thousand years old. We've looked at then the nature of faith and we've looked at the definition of faith last week and we began with our illustration of uh, faith characters that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 with Abel. We started this Christian life of ours in faith It was with faith that we received salvation and now the encouragement is to keep walking in faith. That's what we're going to see in this first one. We're dealing with Enoch and it says Enoch walked in faith with God. So what I want us to focus on and to uh, concentrate on this evening in this first lesson is the fact that we're looking at someone who walked with God in faith. The passage then in Hebrews covers Enoch like this. It's in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life 
so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. There are two other references in our Bible to Enoch. One is found in Genesis and the other in the New Testament in the book of Jude. Jude has just one chapter and it's in verse 14. Let's first turn to this reference in Genesis. This is in Genesis 5 verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. And after he had become the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Although, oh sorry, altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. Enoch walked with God. That's the second time that's mentioned in that very brief couple of verses. Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him away. So that's what we're looking at tonight, this element of faith in walking with God. It takes faith to walk with God. In uh, the reference I mentioned in Jude, verse 14, um, Enoch was a prophet of God. As a prophet, you can buy the, the book of his prophecies. It's available for you to purchase, but it's not in Scripture. It wasn't considered essential to be put in Scripture, possibly because everything that he had said had already been said by others, and you don't just keep adding more and more books because it seems the right thing to do if he was only repeating what others had said. Anyway, the early fathers decided that he would not be included in Scriptures, and so we accept what they have said and done. Although... Reference was made to him in June, and a part of his prophecy is recorded for us in the book of Jude. When Satan entered the garden, uh, he deceived Eve. We know the story uh, very well. He didn't only deceive her, but he poisoned all of creation with sin. Everything fell into chaos. We know the plants, the animals, everything was disrupted when sin entered the world. But something else happened as well. He murdered humanity. Satan came as a murderer and he murdered God's humanity. Jesus tells this, doesn't he, in John 8 and 44. He says the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He murdered Adam and Eve. He murdered Cain and Abel. He murdered all those that were to follow. And he's still murdering people today. If, if sin hadn't entered and that the fall hadn't happened, there would be no death. So he is responsible for the death of all people. In Genesis 5, Scripture records for us 1,500 years of history. So it's a big jump just in one chapter and in chapter 5, it starts something like this. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. As you read through the, cat the, the rest of this chapter, it's a catalogue of people being born, living, having children and dying. That's it. That's what it's about. And so it goes through 15 years of history. You're thinking, oh, that's a long time. Well, it is much longer than it appears to us today, because in those days, people lived for a thousand years. So although I say it was a long chunk of history, it was like compressed, if you understand what I'm saying, because people, they lived for so long. He tells us the story of men's lives. They were born, they lived, they had children, and they died. It then comes to this man Enoch, and we'll read it down there. It's a little bit further down in the passage. I read it to you. It talks about when Enoch had lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. It's there the, the recorder, he has to change what he says. He says this, that Enoch walked with God, then he was more, he was no more, sorry, because God took him away. He didn't have to record that this man died. How come he didn't die? If that was the pattern that was established, if the murderer was free to murder whoever he wanted to, and he murdered people over 1,500 years that we read about there, Hebrews 11 and 5 tells us why he was able to cheat death. It says simply that he pleased God. Hmm. He cheated death by pleasing God. And Genesis 5 and 22 tells us how he pleased God. It says, Enoch walked with God. Hmm. That's interesting. He cheated death by pleasing God, and he pleased God by walking with God. You say, well, no one else has done that, Phil. Well, we know that uh, Elijah never died. They don't say the same thing happened to him, but we know he was taken up in the chariot. Moses was another one. He did die, but God, it says God took him. And so there are these three examples from Scripture, as it were, of people who didn't die in the usual pattern of the way. What happened then to Enoch that caused this change, this break in this pattern of people being born and having children and dying? What happened? It says that after he was 65 years of age, you're getting your head around all these numbers now, aren't you? Because it's like, how does this fit in? It doesn't fit into our numbering, but it fits in to this original number. <clears throat> he says, after the birth of his first child at 65, he walked with God. So there was something about him having his first child that caused him to walk with God. We're going to look at walking, what walking with God means and, and why possibly it caused him to change. We're not told how or why the change came about. I'm just surmising it was because his son was born. That's the indication. He had a son, and after he had this son, 
he started to walk with God. So I believe it has something to do with the birth of his son. When Enoch received this first child at this age of 65, God told him to name him Methuselah. What does that name mean? It means his death shall bring about judgment. It's a bit scary, isn't it, to have to name one of your kids something quite like that. I mean, it's all different in those days. I fully understand that. You will name this son. When he dies, I will judge the world. Well, that would wake you up, wouldn't it? I mean, you're thinking... Wow, we, it's like having a child and then God saying, when this child dies, Jesus will come again. It's like, wow, it's just like, it's a lifetime away. Perhaps I need to uh, take stock of my life. I think it was something like this for Enoch. It was a shock to him. Did he then realise how dark the world had become? For God to come and bring judgment on the world... Was it because it was so evil? Well, of course it was. And so this woke him up to the fact this world is a terrible place. We might think the world is all right now, but God might open our eyes to the awfulness that's here and all of a sudden we wake up to the reality. This isn't an evil place. This is a terrible place. Maybe he realised that his conduct would have a great effect on his son. And so he needed to get himself in order, sort himself out, as it were, that he might walk as a, an example to his child because perhaps he hadn't bothered up to that point. Or did he then understand something of the divine movement of God? You say, Philip, what on earth are you talking about? What is the divine movement of God? What does that mean? Perhaps he saw for the first time that he was joined to God in the movement that took place in the history of mankind in the world. I know it sounds rather grand, but you might consider yourself like that. See, the history of the world moves forward. You have been drawn in to walk with God, so you've been drawn in to the purposes of God in the world. You're joining with him in your walk forward in the world. You're starting to understand the purposes of God. People outside of Christendom haven't got a clue. They don't know that the one day Christ is going to come. There's going to be a summation of all these things. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. God has invited you to journey with him and explain to you all of these things that's taking place. You're walking with God. You're walking in the purposes of God. You've joined yourself, as it were, to God. He realised he was in this. He was part of the divine movement of God. Maybe because God said, when your son dies, your son dies, the judgment of God will come on this earth. And that's a divine movement forward in God. And you're part of it. You are part of it, Enoch. So he joined forces with God to walk with him. What does it mean to walk with God? I'm going to suggest four things to you. First, he moved in the same direction as God. 
If you're going to walk with someone, if they're going up the street, you don't go down it. You have to move in the same direction. We must walk, if we're going to walk with God, we walk in agreement with them. We're not at odds with them. We're walking with them, agreeing with them, listening to what God is saying, and we're going to walk with him. We must walk, if we walk together, with a mutual trust. It's not only us trusting God, but we walk with him, and in the end, God trusts us. I love that hymn where we sing, His hope is in us. It always strikes me of, oh no, this is wrong. Our hope is in you. No, he says, my hope is in you. His trust is in us. He trusts us to walk with him and to bring about the purposes of God. You feel, oh, I think you're elevating me too high now. No, I'm not. This is the reality of it. And we must keep in step with God. Um, have you ever walked with somebody who walks very slowly and you tend to stride up? It's very frustrating. Or you're a person who sort of lob, lobs along and you're out with somebody who really marches off. It's, it's tricky. You have to walk together. I'm going to suggest to you but perhaps sometimes God has to slow down a little bit just to walk with us. His pace would be too much for us. But generally speaking, he's not a running God. It was unsightly for Jewish men, mature men, to run anywhere. That's what's so ridiculous about the prodigal son. The father runs to the child and the people go, you don't run as a mature person. You just don't run. Firstly then, we must move in the same direction as God. You say, hang on, God doesn't move. God is everywhere. He fills every space of the universe. If I go to the uttermost eastern part and you go to the uttermost west, well, we're going to meet each other, I understand that, but bear with me. The idea is as far as we go from each other, God is present there all the time and he was present with us as we were moving. Uh, David says, if I go into the heavens or down into the depths, God is always with me because God is everywhere. God doesn't move. So what do I mean by we must move in the same direction. Nothing in creation or in humanity has yet reached finality. Just as history moves forward, you say, well, that's a funny way of expressing it. Of course it does. There was a 1066. There was a 1966. All oh, these dates are so... Well, I live in Hastings, so I would say 1066. 1966 is we won the World Cup, so that, that lodges in my mind. It's now 2023. And so history moves. Nothing is the same. Even in your own life, you say, think things have moved on. It, they've moved on. And of course, they, they're moving on with God. The... The culmination of all things is moving to the day when Christ comes. So you understand the concept of moving. God's divine direction in human history is his uncompromising, unceasing, unabated hostility to sin. That's the direction of God. He is moving in a direction opposed to sin. When sin entered the world, as I mentioned earlier, in the Garden of Eden, God immediately started to move against it forcefully, and he's been moving against sin. That's the direction in which he goes. He's moving against it all the time. 
This is God's divine purpose in the world. To remove sin, to root out all sin, and to root out the person of sin. I don't think of sin as a force or something that we do wrong. I see sin as a person. Satan himself is sin. And he causes us to commit sin. God is love. This is the deepest fact that we know concerning him as a being. He, God himself, is love. And sin has come to mar and to blight and to ruin love. That's what it does. It always does. When we sin, we ruin love. People's relationships are marred and broken. Sin does this all the time. God, can I suggest to you, is at war with sin. That is, God with the angels and through the church is in a campaign fighting against sin constantly on a daily basis. He fights it in every form and on every front. He is totally opposed to it. And yet it seems that the enemy is stirring up more sin and more hatred and bitterness in the world. But God is in a, a campaign of force against it. Isaiah describes God in this form to us. It's found in Isaiah 33. Let me read these verses 13 to 16. He says, you who are far away, that's people who do not know God. Hear what I've done, he says. You who are near, my people, he says this, acknowledge my power. So he says, everyone far away from me or near to me, listen to me. Look what I have done. Examine my power, he says. The sinners in Zion are terrified. These are his people. People who were described as sinners in the Bible are people who knew God but had turned against him, no longer wanted to perhaps uh, follow him or acknowledge him. The sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling, grips the godless. Now he asked the question, who can dwell with the consuming fire? God is like a consuming fire burning up everything in the way of sin that he moves against. Who of us can dwell with a consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Now he describes who can do that. He who walks righteously. We get back to this walking, you see. As we walk with God, we can walk with a God who is so opposed to sin. He is like a consuming fire. He is burning as he moves forward. Who can walk with a God like this, they say? He who wants to live in righteousness, he who walks righteously, and he who speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hands from accepting bribes, who stops his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell in the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail him. Who can walk with God? Only the righteous 
the pure in heart and the way that Isaiah describes it there. Hmm. Sinners, he says, you have reason to be terrified because I am a terrifying God. Remember when the children of Israel were encouraged to go up the mountain and fellowship with God like Moses had, but he said, listen, you stand back from the mountain and you only come up the mountain when I call you up. And there was thundering and smoke and oh, it, was, it was terrifying. And the people said, no, we can't go. We can't stand in the presence of our God because our hearts are not right, you see. So we see something of the heart of this man, Enoch. He desired righteousness and purity so he could walk with his God. You have reason to be terrified, he said. God is on the warpath like an everlasting consuming fire. And it's only those who I've categorized there that can walk with their God. We live in a world where the world and the flesh and the devil are seeking to pull us away from God. We want to walk with God, walking in righteousness and purity of life and not doing all the things, you know, receiving bribes, plotting murder, dreaming up evil. We are not those people. We want to walk with God. But the world is pulling us away all the time. Our nature would pull us away from God. Despite this, Enoch walked with God. He was like no other man then. He, he stood head and shoulders above everyone else as he walked with God. He marched forward with God. He was like God, hostile to evil. And he walked by faith in his God. The second point I made is that we must walk in agreement with God. He walked in the same direction as God. Now he must walk in agreement with God. Agreement means there's no more controversy between you and God. Do you argue with God? When God tells you to do something, do you say, oh, I'll think about it. Oh, I'm not really mature enough to do this. There was no controversy between Enoch and God. My will, he said, my opinions, what I think, they're not important. Would you dare say that? What you think, your opinions, what you want, it's not important. If you're going to walk with God, the only thing that's important is what God wants. If God wants to walk in this direction, you walk with God in that direction. You don't have an opinion about it. You submit yourself to what God is calling you to do. Enoch was saying, Lord, I want to know your will and I want to walk in will, in, in your will. I've discovered that many Christians agree with God in principle, but not in practice, because they don't do what they clearly read in the scriptures they should do. They just don't do it. They can make excuses why they don't do it, but they just don't. They think it's a good thing. They wouldn't argue with what God has written in here and that it is the best, but in practice they struggle to do it. The Ten Commandments of the New Testament it's really the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Uh, the moral principles that Jesus said, if you're going to live in the kingdom with me, this is how it works. So it's almost like the Ten Commandments of the New Testament. Let your light shine before other men so they might see your good works. 
keep the moral commands of God, it says. Don't get angry with people. Don't resist an evil person. Love your enemies. Give to the poor. Pray and fast. Don't worry and don't judge other people. You said, oh, we know all these things. Of course, they're simply written for us, Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And we agree with all of them in principle, but not to practice them is not to walk with God. Enoch did. He read it, he heard it, God spoke to him, and he simply walked in agreement with God. There was no controversy, as it were, between the two of them. He walked with God, it says. He walked with God for 300 years. Wow, that's a long time walking with God. How long have you walked with God? You go, maybe about 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, how long have you seriously walked with God where there was no controversy between you, where you walked in agreement with him? How long is that? Oh, oh uh, don't, don't, don't ask me that. Uh, he walked with God in faith for 300 years. As far as he was concerned, if God said it, it was so. That was it. That's the way it was. He walked with him in agreement. The third area of this walking with God is walking with him with a mutual trust. Enoch trusted God. So what he did, technically, he didn't have control over his life. We, we enjoy being Christians and we agree with the principles. And as far as possible, we're not, we're not controversy between us and God. We're, we're doing our best. But to release the control you have of your life to God, see, that's just another step that he took. When we get to the place where we can lose control of our lives to God, God can trust us. He can't trust us until then because we will always wrestle back control and do what we want to do. But to actually release the control of your life to God and say, if it goes in this direction, it's fine with me. If we walk in this direction, it's fine with me. I will trust you with where you take me. And God says, because you now trust me, I can trust you. Unless you can let go of the control of your life, God will never trust you because at any moment you might want to pick up the control of your life again. So it's not mutual, is it? I love this about Abraham. Abraham, he never lived as long as Enoch, but God trusted, trusted Abraham. It's amazing. Listen to this verse. Abraham, he says about him, will surely become a great and powerful nation. He says, this man will become a great and powerful nation. He was expressing his trust in this man. And he goes on to say, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. How could he say that? How could he say that about him? How, how did he know he could trust in that much? that he would so walk with God that nations would be blessed because he would demonstrate great faith. And that's what he did, didn't he? When he said, I want you to come and 
sacrifice that which is most precious to you, which is your son. He said, we're on it straight away. It said he left immediately to go and do that thing. See, they trusted each other. It's wonderful when he decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, I'll just go down and have a chat with my friend to see if we agree together. What mutual trust? You think, why God? Because he was his friend. Because he could trust him. So you think, does God really want that from me? That we can walk in such a way that he would consult us about something? He would trust us with things? That's what the example of Enoch is here for us. God expressing his faith, his hope, and his trust in this man, Abraham. So before I come to the last one, God trusted Enoch. They moved in the same direction against sin. They moved in perfect agreement with one another. There was no controversy between the two. And I just get the impression they had a good chat to each other, face to face, about stuff. What does that look like today with you? Sitting down and saying, God, I don't get this. I'm really a little bit angry about this situation. This seems unfair to me, but I'll say this. I trust you completely. I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. It is very painful. It's very difficult, but I do trust you completely. And he would say, that's, that's all you need to do. Just keep walking forward, trusting me. The fourth thing about this walking with God is we must keep in step with God. Mm -hmm. Enoch didn't run ahead of God or lag behind. <laughs> we were just talking before the class started. A day is like a, a thousand years to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, we get into all funny, complicated arithmetic when we start messing around with that verse. What he's saying was, listen, my time is completely different to yours. So when I say something like, I'm coming soon, that could be 2,000 years. Understand? That's what it means. I will move quickly on this situation. We think it means in the next 30 seconds, God goes, oh, actually, it's 10 years. You see, his time is not our time. So we have to be very careful when we read God saying, I will do things presently or, or immediately or quickly. What do you mean, God? And because as we walk with him, we get it. We must walk with him. We mustn't run ahead of God or, or that behind. I said, maybe at some time Enoch walked slowly and God would have to slow down and walk with him because he wanted to walk with him. God wanted to walk with Enoch as much as Enoch wanted to walk with God. Sometimes our zeal, it causes us to outrun God. You know what I mean? Uh, we see with, with Peter, who's a classic example of this. He's got such zeal for God, he straps on his sword like Jesus tells him to. He gets in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's slashing it around, cutting off people's ears. It's, and Jesus says, oh, well, slow down, slow down. Your zeal has outrun me. That's not what I want. And then immediately, he's lagging behind. Remember when they've taken Jesus the prisoner and they're taking him to his trial? Where's Peter? He's nowhere to be seen. He's not running ahead then. He's lagging behind. 
a classic example of running ahead. Now, I love Peter. He is a great example to us, and we learn so much by his, you know, petuosity, as it were. We learn so much from it, from his outspokenness. And we see, again, another wonderful example he gives us. Running ahead. Running ahead will cause calamity in our lives. If we hold back, we can often miss opportunities that God has for us. It's just true. Enoch's life of faith, it pleased God. Enoch was translated into heaven. He didn't die. This might have literal application for some of us. Uh, I don't think it will for me. Uh, but there are people today, perhaps they won't die. Christ will come before the end of their lives and they will be translated in a similar way to Enoch was. But for most of us, uh, we will, we will die. Uh, I always turn to this verse in John 11, 25 and 26. I love this verse. Jesus said to her, remember he's talking to Mary and Martha, Mary particularly, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, he says. He who believes in me will live. Oh, she's all right the theologically up to this point. Of course we know there's a resurrection and we'll be raised from the dead and we will live. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, she's all right with that. He who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me, will never die. Oh no, I don't get that bit now. If I believe in you, I will die and there will be a resurrection. No, he goes on to say, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And he adds this bit to it. Do you believe this? That you will never die? <laughs> we know what death is. It's when we close our eyes and breathe our last breath and life is no more in us. I'm sure for me at my age that will come. One day I will breathe my last breath and I'll close my eyes and that will be the end of me. But I believe what happens is that that instant, that moment of time, I pass into eternity. It's as just as I close my eyes and open my eyes and I move into eternity. You see, I died but I never died. I died from the world's perspective. We've lost Phil, he's not with us anymore. But from God's perspective, you will never die. You just pass from this world into this paradise. Of course, you know, I believe in Jesus must return and the resurrection of the dead and so forth. It says of Jesus on the cross, he tasted death for us. The separation from God that is, that we would never have to taste that. So the taste of death, the, the agony that he felt, my God, my God, where are you? I've lost you. We will never feel that or experience that. I count it a privilege. I've known God all of my life from a tiny child. And when I pass from this life to the next life, nothing is broken. It's moving on into this new realm with him. So that's a little study of Enoch. 
a man who walked with God by faith. And his encouragement is that we too will walk by faith with our God. No matter how difficult it gets, there'll be no controversy between us, but we will walk in faith. Amen. Welcome back. Our next uh, ancient character we're going to look at is uh, Noah. It's a very uh, familiar story and a, a favourite of Lot's. Um, we looked at Jonah, which again was a very favourite story, and we had some real fun with Jonah. I might have blown some of your uh, thoughts and ideas out of the water. I'm sorry about that. This is a far more straightforward story. I'm not going to mess with the story of Noah at all. I do promise you that. So uh, the things that we generally believe, it, it's fairly straightforward. We all know it. Uh, God judges a sinful world through a flood, saving Noah and his family and the animals as well. That's it. It's, it's simple. It's straightforward. You read the full account of it in Genesis chapter 6 to 9. So there's quite a lot there covered for us. So lots of detail. We're not going to read that tonight. I just want to read to you like I do each time. Uh, these brief cameos that we find in Hebrews. This is Hebrews 11 and verse 7. It says this, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah, like the two previous examples that we've had of Abel and Enoch, is commended by uh, or for just two or three things. It usually goes like this, by faith he did something. So by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, and then it says by faith he was commended. So in each one of these little cameos of these people, we read this two or three times. By faith, he did this. By faith, he did that. Now, his life was much more than just these two things. But the author is trying to draw out something about these great characters of the Old Testament and give us examples of their faith. In lots of ways, they failed God. In lots of ways, they were a disappointment to God. We can be like that. We can be really powerful in some areas and really weak in others because we're a funny mixture of, of you know, we're not just all perfect or all bad. It, it's not like that. So by faith, it says, he built an ark and by faith, he condemned the world. So we'll have a look at this building of the ark first and we'll move on to the condemning of the world in a minute. When we studied Abel's faith, we said Abel worshipped God in faith. It was exciting to see the sacrifice that he brought, how his brother had no faith. He didn't believe in, in the shedding of blood would be the forgiveness of sin. He didn't believe that there was sin in his life. But Abel worshipped God in faith, it says. Enoch walked in faith. But what Noah did, he obeyed in faith. So we have a different sort of picture each time of what faith meant to these different characters. Let's examine then this faith through obedience. 
It's a word we don't like too much, isn't it? There's, there's something of the rebel in all of us, something of what's a remnant in that fallen nature of ours. Once our spiritual head was the arch-rebel, Satan himself. Once he was sovereign over our lives until we came to Christ. And so we were born in a rebellious way, into a rebellious world, and so that rebel is in all of us. And so that's why obedience sounds like, Ugh. but obedience is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's a great thing. But we, we go, are not quite comfortable with obedience. He obeyed God, even though nothing made sense. It's a bit like Enoch just trusting God with what God said. There was no controversy. If God said the moon was made of cheese, it was made of cheese, and that was the end of the matter. There was no controversy between the two. We see this wonderful obedience that uh, Noah exercised in God. Even though it didn't make sense, he was going to be obedient. He obeyed God, it says, in holy fear. And he obeyed God so he could save his family. This seems something a little bit selfish there, but I don't think it's tied up with selfishness. So faith then, I want to teach in this section, is that faith requires obedience all the time in our lives. To think that you can walk by faith, live a faith-filled life, but not be obedient is a contradiction in terms. It just does not work. He obeyed then. He obeyed God even though nothing made sense. Faith, you see, is not based on our experience. It's not based on our feelings. It's not based on what we think. It's not even based on what you know. It's based only on what God says. That's why it's important if you're going to launch out in an, uh, a project of faith, you need to know that God has said something. It's not good enough that it's a good idea. It's not good enough that somebody else does it. It's not good enough that it's successful somewhere else. God must speak to you. And when God has spoken, in obedience, you have every confidence. Faith is the assurance that you know what you know because God has spoken. So faith then is based on God speaking. It's so vital that we hear God speak. To never hear God speak, then you can't walk in faith. And without faith, you can't please God. So it's, it, we, must, we must put ourselves in the place where we hear God. We, we learn what it is to hear God. The wonderful thing about salvation is made it possible for our ears to be open and to hear God again. I've heard many Christians say to me, God never says anything to me. I think, that's terrible then. If, if, God, if you never hear God speak, maybe they say, I don't know if I've heard God speak or I'm not sure if God has spoken because God is speaking to us all of the time. Obviously, if we close our ears to him, he stops talking to us. But he is wanting to talk to us. We see from this story, we look carefully at it or we look back at the events in retrospect and although he 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 stepped out in faith although it never made sense god showed himself 
as he led to this point. He just didn't come to know and say, build an ark, I'm going to flood the world. He saw things in his life, or he heard things in his life that brought him to this place. So God was very gracious to him. It's as though God gave little indicators. Hmm. We often see this by looking back. I remember uh, when my father passed away, I was ministering in a particular church. My father used to attend this church sometime. And on this particular Sunday, my brother came to preach in our church. And uh, uh, my father wasn't going to come, and then he did come. And when my brother preached, he preached on a passage from Job, which was about preparing oneself for death. Well, I didn't see anything then. Within a short while, a really a short while, my father passed away. So it was like looking back and thinking, mm, he preached this sermon on death. He heard his, his other son preach, as it were, and I was leading the service and so forth. So it was like an indicator to me that God knew and God was... Because we didn't see this at the time. You don't think, oh, someone's going to die. But we can be sensitive sometimes and see the hand of God doing things as it moves towards a climax, as it were. Usually, as I say, we see it in retrospect. Uh, not in advance. What did God say to Noah? I'd turn you to Genesis 6, just a couple of verses there from 12 to 14. God saw how corrupt the earth had become from all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Well, that was clear. He didn't, I mean, you're thinking, why doesn't God come and talk like that today? Just like make it so uh, audible, so clear, so, so it wouldn't, you know, it, because you have to obey. What a challenge want you to build this enormous boat for me out of this wood. We'll discover some more things about the challenge of obedience to this, this message that he hears. As I said, this wasn't a complete shock to Noah, the fact that God was going to bring the earth to the end. Who was Noah's grandfather? Oh, lo and behold, it was Methuselah. Okay, so Enoch had a son called Methuselah. Methuselah had one called Laman, was it? Uh, like that, I think his name was Laman. And then he had this son called Noah. Okay, so uh, Methuselah was his, his grandfather. When, when Noah, was, uh, Noah was born, his grandfather was 369 years old. Again, it's this baffling numbers, don't worry about it. Um, he wasn't very old, equivalent to a young man in his 20s or 30s today, if we were to contract it down to 70 or 80 years. So when Noah was born, this, this relative of his, this grandfather of his, he was just 369 years old. He was in his family. He knew Methuselah. He knew his name. He knew what his name meant. 
He also knew his great-grandfather, Enoch, and what a weirdo he was, okay, because the day he was born, his life changed so dramatically. Then you do think that Enoch said nothing about what he believed and thought? He walked with God. Everyone knew what Enoch thought. Everyone saw the tremendous change in his life and said, Enoch, what's happened to you? And he's just given the whole thing, both barrels, you know. This was going to be the end of the world. When my son dies, it's the end. God told me to name him Methuselah. And when he died, there would be the judgment. They would have known that. Noah would have known that. Would he have believed it? Well, he might have struggled. I don't know. He might have been one who simply just believed it. He, he was from a, a godly line of people. Maybe he simply accepted it. Of course, the name meant his death, as I said, shall bring judgment on the world. Was he watching his granddad? Was he thinking, I wonder when he's going to die? I mean, he's only 369. It probably lasts until he's 850 or something. So I've got a bit of time, um, but the time is weird in those days. I'm sure, I'm sure, I believe that Noah knew that the end of the earth, the end of the world was coming and God was going to judge it. <laughs> it's strange, isn't it, that Methuselah lives longer than any other person. What does that say to us? He lived 969 years. It only says one thing. God is extremely patient and long-suffering. He thought, I will give you as long as I possibly can. So he decides, I'm going to judge the world. Then he waits a thousand years to do it. Wow, I mean, a thousand years? God made his mind up what he was going to do there. Well, he actually made his mind back a long time before that, what he was going to do. He could see it. But having declared, I'm going to judge the world, he waits a thousand years. And so this man lives longer than any other man in the world. Let's look at this timeline. God tells Noah to build the ark when he was only 500 years old. He's 500 and God says, I want you now to build the ark. So it wasn't a great shock, was it? He goes, God's going to judge the earth build a boat, put two and two together, how's God going to do this? He's going to flood the earth, God tells him. When he's told, Methuselah is 869 years old when Noah is told to build the ark. It takes him about 120 years to build the ark. He has no children when God tells him to build the ark. So when he eventually finishes building the ark, his kids are a hundred, something like that, years old. Methuselah dies at 969, 100 years after Noah starts to build the ark. How exciting for Methuselah when he realises the outworking of his name. God's doing it. I'm not going to live much longer, maybe another hundred years or so, but not much longer. And so he knows that they're moving towards the climax. As he sees the ark being constructed and coming to a conclusion, he thinks to himself, soon I'm going to die. Well, he was 969. He dies. 
maybe 10 or 20 years before the whole business. See, one day is a thousand years. So when God says, I'm going to do it, it's not to the day particularly. It's pretty close to the time. Noah is 600 years old when the flood comes. As I said, his children are about 100 years old. That's it. How long does Noah live after the flood? Only another 350 years. So he lives to the ripe old age of 950. That's sort of the timeline. So it wasn't a complete shock. Do you understand what I'm saying to him? See, if we walk with God, when God tells us to do something, it's not a complete shock. There are the telltale signs, and as we walk with him, we, we see them coming. As Jesus walked with his disciples, he told them things all the time. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it, most of it. It was all over their heads. He says, don't worry, one day you'll get it all, you know, when I'm not here. But he was telling them all the time. God tells us stuff all the time. We must be looking and walking with him and listening to him, and he will pre-warn us of things that are happening. It was a complete shock, though, in one sense, to build the ark something didn't make sense. He said, when warned about things not yet seen. What wasn't seen? Rain wasn't seen. How was, how was all this water going to come and flood the earth? He didn't live particularly near the sea anyway, and that's, you could have a tsunami, I suppose, but, but that, isn't, that isn't flooding the earth, that just floods a region and it, it recedes again. Where was all this water going to come from? He didn't know about rain. Rain had not happened. So it was a mystery to him. When warned about things not yet seen, you see, it might be easy or easier if God speaks and you know exactly what's going on and you understand everything. But what if he says something that you have no understanding or reason about? Do you obey God? Go, build a boat. It took him 120 years to build this boat. They must have ridiculed him and mocked him. Have you ever wondered if people helped him build the boat? He started on the boat before he had any children. Could he have built that boat on his own? See, I tend to believe that people helped him build the boat. He paid people perhaps to build the boat. Uh, what happened to them when the boat was finished and they didn't get on board? The Bible is clear. It says they were swept away in the flood. <laughs> this is a bit of a scary thought, that people can be involved in building the church, the fabric of the church, the material of the church, but be lost in the end because they're not born again. It's a scary thought, isn't it? Perhaps the Bible is saying something of that there. We think we're building the kingdom, but we're not really building it at all. It never rains. So where was all this flood water going to come from? Faith sometimes requires us to believe in the inconceivable, we look with our natural eyes and we think, this could never happen. There might be a nation that's so locked in evil. <laughs> Let's go back to that wonderful story of Jonah. 
Jonah was a rebellious prophet, I know. But if he wasn't a good prophet, you can't imagine him going to Nineveh and say that God is going to save this place. It would be inconceivable. They were so wicked and evil as we discovered, you would say, this is inconceivable. God could not do this. But he does. We have to believe in the inconceivable. We have to attempt the unsurmountable. And we have to accomplish the impossible with God. But it's not you, you see. It's him. We're just uh, partnering him, walking with him, assisting him in what he says. Hmm. I tend to think if you can do it in your own strength with your ability, it's not faith at all. It's not faith. It's something else. It has to be almost impossible. We're told also that he obeyed God out of holy fear. Proverbs 9 and 10 tells us this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I like this version of it. Or the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding for all who obey him. See, if you, if you don't choose to obey, you'll never understand God. It's a condition that's attached to it. Obey, obey me and you'll understand me. If you don't want to obey me, you'll never understand what I'm talking about, what I'm doing, the movements I'm bringing about in the earth. When God then tells us to do something, we simply obey him. Not because we fear his reprimands if we disobey. That's not the reason we do it. We must do it because we love him and we put our perfect trust in him. He knows what's best, you see. He always knows what's best. And he wants the best for us. We sometimes don't see this or understand it or even believe it because he takes us through some very difficult, painful experiences, but he knows it's for our best. Jesus says a similar thing, doesn't he, when he's teaching after the Sermon on the Mount in 7 and 26, Matthew. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, it's sort of a negative way he says it, and does not put them into practice, is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. Hearing the voice of God, the word of God, the instruction of God, and not to do it, he says, you're foolish. Your life will end in a collapse. It will collapse. So when you hear me, do the things I say. Noah's respect and obedience to God's word was the hallmark of his faith. That's what the writer here is trying to point out. He says with Abel, he worshipped with faith. With Enoch, he walked with faith. But with this man, Noah, he obeyed with faith. His faith is all about his obedience. Can I dare say that your faith is a direct proportion to your knowledge of God? We study the word of God, not that we might be smart theologians and have all the answers. We study the word of God so we might know God more, that, that he becomes richer. We understand him more. If we understand more about God, we can exercise more faith in him and it's easier then to obey him. You can't put faith in someone you don't know or trust. 
In the natural, you can't do that. You've got to get to know people a little bit before you can trust them. It says also that he obeyed God to save his family. Hmm, that's a good reason, isn't it, to do it? He feared the Lord, but he also loved his family. It proved to be sufficient motivation for him to do what God had said. See, with your lives, you're building an ark. With your lives, you save people. They get on board you. You, you show them Christ. You provide for them a means of salvation. Your life becomes the ark. Your life becomes the means of salvation for other people. They get on board you. They listen to you. They trust you. A church is an ark, isn't it? It's where believers come together and they create a place where people can come on board and they too can be saved. So whether it's our life or our church, we're in the, building of, in the business of building arks. Noah saved his family. It says that there was only one righteous man on the earth at that time, and his name was Noah. It doesn't say his wife was righteous, or his sons, or his daughters-in-law. So I presume they weren't. If God said there was only one, then he was the one. He found favour in the eyes of the Lord because he walked in righteousness, because he was a righteous man. So if Noah was only the righteous one, then how did these other people get saved? Why did God save them? Well, you say you had to save them because there had to be more people to, you know, fill the earth again with people. But what is so encouraging is that because of this man's faith, his family became born again. Born again in this chance that they had an opportunity to go again with God. They were saved from the destruction that was there because of this man. I can't save my children. You can't save your children. You can't save them. But because of your faith and your righteousness, God will save them. That's a bit arrogant. No, it's not. Because God loves you and because you're special to him. Just like he brought all of Noah's family into safety, he, he brings our families too into safety. There's a verse that indicates that to ensure that he saved his family, Noah made sure that the seven got into the ark first and he followed at the end. And when he got into the ark, God closed the door. So I'm not saying he didn't trust God. I'm just saying he made sure. I built this great boat. Was he interested in animals? I don't know. Perhaps he was, perhaps he wasn't. But he didn't build it for the animals, did he? He built it primarily so his family would get on board. And so he made sure that when the time came, the other seven went on and him as number eight got on and then the door was shut. They were safe. The last little bit of this by faith aspect is by faith he condemned the world. Do you know that's what you do? 
you act as people who condemn the world. You say, I don't condemn anyone. Let me explain to you. Because Noah could believe in God, so could everyone else. Noah was like every other person. If he could believe, why couldn't the rest of the world believe? But by him believing, you see, he condemned the others because they didn't believe. If only he could believe and no one else could, that wouldn't have been just. But God is just and fair. So he says, if Noah, if you can believe, so can everyone else, because you're like everyone else. So his salvation condemned the rest of the world. They could choose to believe in God. The church is despised by the world for this very same reason, that we condemn it, you see. The church can believe in God. It can believe in Jesus. It can believe in salvation. It can believe in turning the other cheek and doing all the other things. We believe it, so if we can believe it, they can believe it, but they don't want to believe it. So by being, just by being a Christian, by being in a church, you are condemning others because they choose not to believe it when they could believe it. Your life, you see, is a living letter of faith in God. Your very life, the very fact that you say, I believe in God and his son Christ as my saviour, you condemn everybody else who doesn't. Now, you're not condemning them as people, but they stand condemned before God. If you can believe, so can they. We need to live our lives so people can read our lives. We need to be read by everybody. And then if people can read us and see God in us, then you will live by faith. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk if you would like to partner with us by making a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy.